Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Tucson Festival of Books podcast. I'm Gay Vernon. My guest today is the New York Times bestselling author, Joseph Finder. The Tucson Festival of Books is Tucson's gift to literature and literacy throughout the Southwest. Both the festival and this podcast are made possible by the more than 200 sponsors and 1,200 local volunteers, and they're involved in working all year long toward putting on the most wonderful events, especially the big one every March, that is the Tucson Festival of Books. Special thanks to our three presenting sponsors, the Arizona Daily Star, the University of Arizona, and Tucson Medical Center. Once again, a huge and heartfelt thank you to all of our sponsors and volunteers. And now let me give you a quick introduction to one of my favorite authors, somebody I've known personally and enjoyed reading for almost 30 years. Joe Fender caught my attention with the novel The Moscow Club, published in 1991. Here we are, it's 2020, dozens of very clever, suspenseful thrillers later. He's done it again with his fourth novel in the Nick Heller series, House on Fire, is now out in paperback. His novels are filled with heroes and villains from all walks of life. Some are senators, some are software engineers. There are judges and CEOs and retired special forces fighters. And recently, one of my favorite good guys was a coffee roasting entrepreneur. And I'm absolutely delighted to be able to welcome him right now to this conversation for the Tucson Festival of Books podcast. Joe, welcome. And first of all, where are you and how are you? Hi, Gay. Great to, great to hear from you. I am in, uh, I'm on Cape Cod right now. Nice. We're sheltering in place, quarantining, and um, we're fine. We're good. And has this stretch of time without places to go, people to see, been a very productive writing time for you, or has the opposite happened? You can't seem to focus on anything new. More like the opposite. So okay. More, it's... It, Kind of, I find it difficult to focus. I've heard people say that. That's why I wondered. And, you, yeah. Next idea. Um, yeah. I do, so I'm, much. No, I'm, 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 I'm pretty far into my next. Book. Okay. Well, that's a good. That's a good sign. That's a good yeah, sign. So you're, you're focusing on that. Um, I, yeah. I do want to start out this conversation. I can't. I can't go a moment more by telling our listeners that you have the uncanny talent of somehow, not every single novel, but every once in a while, the story will sound terribly familiar to the latest headline in the newspaper. And we are speaking on October 21st, and this morning's headline has to do with a pharmaceutical company, Purdue Pharma, the maker of OxyContin, agreeing to plead guilty to federal criminal charges, closing down the company, and paying out more than $8 billion for the role they had in creating the opioid crisis. Where do I go, Joe? How do you do this? This is, this is so what House on Fire is all about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I, I had the idea, I think, probably four or five years ago. And it just seemed very newsworthy back then. And uh, it was sort of, it was a, an idea that really grabbed me because I was, I've been doing so much reading about the opioid crisis and I read a number of really good books, especially, and it got me really angry and angry in particular at the pharmaceutical companies who are making this stuff that's addicting so many people. And I just sort of thought, what if I set a thriller inside, well, not a corporation, but a family, a wealthy family like that's made its its fortune 
off of opioids. And so that's, that's what propelled me into House on Fire. And what did you do to research for this novel? Well, the research was mostly reading articles about pharmaceutical companies, and I wanted to get a sense of what their sales conferences are like and what, the, what life is like within the corporation. But I also did some reading about wealthy families and what happens when there is major dissension in the ranks. Because I wanted this to be a story not about a company, but about a family who's gotten rich off the company. And their reaction to it. Yeah. Yeah, and their reaction to it, exactly. Well, it certainly is a timely focus, that's for sure. Uh, The book is just doing so well. It's been out in hardback now for a bit and paperback too. You must be hearing from so many people that have been pleased that you brought this, this issue to light. They, at the end of the day, have so much to think about because you have chosen a great subject to teach us a little bit about. Obviously, that happens in-house on fire. That's right. So I, I, I like myself learning things when I read, whether it's a mystery or a thriller. I sort of want to learn more about the world or more about people. It's, it's sort of, otherwise, it's just a confection. A thriller is just candy. I want, I want there to be some substance to it. So I want people to learn. I also want to learn myself when I'm writing. I've, I mean, I've written 16 novels already, and this is what I do. And I want to, as I'm doing it, learn more about the world and sort of pass that on. I sort of feel like I, um, I give my readers a kind of privileged inside look at, the, at certain worlds, whether it's the world of a, of a coffee entrepreneur in Boston, as you reminded me, or but the world of a senator or the world of a, uh, a, an entrepreneur who's made his fortune uh, from opioids. So there's so much that got me angry about this story. Um, in particular, the more I read about the pharmaceutical companies that make opioids, the more I realized they were really pushing this drug uh, and they were, they were doing it in a way that I think was medically unethical. I think they were convincing doctors that this was a non-addictive substance. Well, OxyContin is highly addictive. You've got to be really careful when you take it. And yet they were, they were selling it to doctors on the, on the basis of it being completely uh, benign and not addictive. And that's just not true. In the book, um, Joe, there's a quote that's referred to a few times. And the quote is, if we want things to stay as they are, things will have to change. That's right. It's crucial to your story, and it's crucial to just about everything that's going on in the world today. Yeah, that's right. There's a great metaphor where if if you want a fence post to stay white over the years, you have to keep painting it. Otherwise, it will get darker and darker. So that was sort of my metaphor for this whole book, which is if you want things to change, want things to stay the same, ultimately, you're going to have to make some changes. For some of our listeners that might not know a little bit about your background, you've been writing bestsellers since the early 90s, certainly winning many awards and fans along the way. 
However, that was not your plan to do uh, your plan to do something else yeah. with your adult life, like work for the CIA yeah. or maybe become a professor of Russian history. That's what I've read. So what happened? What led to writing? What led to an interest in espionage and thrillers? I think what really happened in my case was a couple of things. One was the more I learned about what my work would be in the CIA, the less interested I was in it. There was a lot of focus on, you know, reading economic journals and and doing reports on the sorghum crop in the Ukraine in 1956, this kind of thing. And I just sort of thought, I am interested in that, but I'm interested in many other things as well. I didn't want to limit my world to that. The other thing is, when I was in my early 20s, I discovered the thriller. Really, I hadn't read them before. So I, I discovered the novels of Frederick Forsyth and Robert Ludlum and Ken Follett in particular. And I just thought, these are so captivating. And, it's, and just imagine being able to do something that kept people staying up late at night reading, wanting to finish one more chapter. You know, that's, that's a kind of a hypnotic power that's, that a good storyteller has. And I just decided I wanted to try my hand at it. And so I wrote that first book, The Moscow Club, 30 years ago. Amazing. Amazing. Mm, absolutely. I, I love to go back and, and read some of the, the books that you wrote in the beginning of your career. Um, they are just, you know, they're just as exciting as they were when, when first read. And, and the plots are meaningful. They've got something going that makes you think of something again that you might have just seen in the newspaper recently. When you, when you start a new novel, is it the what-if question? Is it the scenario, or is it a certain character that you think of first? What gets the motion going? For me, and there's, of course, there's lots of ways of doing this as a writer, but for me, it's almost always the what-if, the intriguing question is sort of like a a rip in the fabric of the world. And if the premise is intriguing enough, this will power you through the book as the writer. And so I think uh, the characters, my characters, uh, I decide who it's going to be after I figure out what kind of book it's going to be, what the premise is. So I start with the premise, the what if, and then I begin to develop the characters. I ask myself, who is most likely to be the center of the story? Who are his or her enemies? What's the, what's the dynamic going to be? And it, it is ultimately the characters that interest me most of all. But I start off telling the story with a what if all the time. And do you, I'm, I'm specifically thinking about something like The Switch. Mm -hmm. I think that was like two or three books ago. And also Judgment. Uh, the, I, I recently reread your last three books to get ready to chat with you today. And, and it was so much fun. They were just as exciting. Um, and I listened to the switch too on audio book. Yeah. Excellent job. That was just yeah, wonderful. Um, oh my goodness. Absolutely. So for the switch, that to me was so interesting because it didn't involve a CEO. It didn't involve, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a big mover and shaker. We start out by seeing something that could have happened, you know, just something ordinary that happened to an ordinary person. And it was the way that person reacted to those set of circumstances mm -hmm. that made it an extraordinary story. 
that to me is, is, is something that anybody could enjoy. When you're thinking about something like that, though, because you do have a series, a Nick Heller yeah. series, how do you decide whether it becomes a Nick Heller kind of story or just a standalone with a new set of characters? Yeah, well, that's an interesting question. What I've learned is that the Nick Heller stories are really very different from my standalone stories. In my standalone books, I usually write about an ordinary person who gets into extraordinary things, whose life is transformed for one reason or another. But when I write the Nick Heller books, Nick is my continuing character and sort of badass character, and he can't have his life transformed in every book, or it just would not be plausible. So instead, Nick is an investigator. He's digging into something, and the lives of the people that he's investigating are changed or transformed, not Nick. Nick basically goes on from book to book the same way he always has, as sort of a guy who hates bullies and and likes to dig up secrets that people would rather keep buried and that kind of thing. So Nick is a character I really love writing, um, but it's got to be the right kind of book. It's got to be this, a story in which he's an investigator and, and his life is not turned upside down. And he is somebody who has a military background. Right. Do you know personally people who have been in special yeah. forces who do that kind of work that the rest of us couldn't even begin to think yes, about? Yes, I've got a number of sources uh, who were in the special forces. And a couple of them were in there in Afghanistan recently. Um, one of them was in Vietnam years ago. And I talk to them a lot when I'm doing the research for my Nick Miller books to try to get not just get things accurate, but I want to get things feeling authentic to someone who's been there. So I want basically someone who's been in the special forces to read House on Fire and say, yep, that's the way it was. So it's, it's a lot of the kind of daily texture, the daily life, what life is like in the special forces. That's what really intrigues me more than what kind of weaponry they use, for instance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, and in the book Judgment, your main character is a female judge who makes a mistake and that comes back to haunt her more than you can imagine. Did you reach out and contact a female judge and say, hey, what do you think about this idea? How would you react? What was that? I, did. I, I spoke to five superior court judges in Massachusetts, all of whom were women. And. I talked to them. I told them what I was interested in finding out, which is what is their regular daily life like and what would happen if they got in trouble? And, you know, the reputation of a judge is so important and they really have to protect that, that this was a kind of an uncomfortable discussion in some ways when I would talk to them about what would happen if you made a mistake. And the case of judgment, for example, she sleeps with a guy and she's married and that sort of extramarital affair has major consequences in a case that she's ruling on. So I didn't, and of course, none of my judges were made any kind of extramarital <laughs> you know, mistakes in the way that uh, my character does. But we did talk a lot about 
what what it's like to be a judge and what it's like to be a female judge in particular, because it's different from being a male judge. So I love doing research. I love interviewing people in particular. It's my favorite thing. And I love doing the interviews in order to create a fictional character who's sort of based on real life. How do you work on the pacing of a story? Like, How do you build the tension enough in the beginning to keep us uh, definitely wanting to turn the page? I mean, you know, it's not like a movie. We don't have scary music that is the cue that something's going to happen. We've got to depend on your talent with words. So how does that work? How do you learn how to do that? Well, well? the first thing I need to do when I'm working on pacing a book is to make sure that I establish normalcy so that when the book opens, we see a regular person in their normal life, in their normal setting, and that is what's going to be torn away from that person. As long as we believe the character, we are going to go along for the ride. So it's a matter of establishing the character in a normal setting, most of all. And then I like to accelerate the pace as the book goes along. I like to sort of have things happen faster and faster. The thing about pacing, though, is if you only have sort of one, you know, chase novel, chase scene rather after another, people get tired of it. You need to have a break. You need mm. to have a cooling off period. And so I will have, I will sort of have several high intensity, very nervous making scenes followed by something which is sort of more contemplative. And I've learned that that contrast can really jack up the suspense in the book. And the other thing is I like to do is I like to have my scenes be short. I really think that, you know, if you look at the length of chapters in thrillers, they tend to be a lot shorter than they used to be if you read a book, a thriller written in the 40s or 50s. And I think that represents the influence of television and movies. Uh, And even more so now, the influence of the Internet which I think has made our attention spans shorter and shorter. So in order to make sure I capture people, I have short, punchy scenes. And I find that that tends to captivate people, even if their attention span is sort of fractured by Mm -hmm. our daily exposure to to multimedia. I agree. And when you start a novel, Joe, do you actually have in your mind, okay, this is where this crucial turning point has to happen. This is, you know, do you know what's going to happen to the the main character at a certain point at uh, three quarters of the way through, or does it develop over time? Uh, in other words, I start out trying to plot the major beats in the story, but what I what I find myself doing is I will plot out maybe the first third of a book, and then I just sort of strap in and let the book happen around me. And I have found that if my attention is riveted by something, or if I'm made nervous by something, then the reader's going to be made nervous as well. So Mm. it's not... So in other words, a lot of the plot turns and where they're placed in the novel happen out out of my own instinct. So it feels to me like this is a time in which we need a big turn, this is a time when we need to have things be calm. This is a time when we need a couple of smaller turns, a revelation. I've got a sign 
on my computer that says reverse reveal surprise. That, that is every scene has to either um, reveal something, uh, reverse the, uh, the fate of our, not, of our hero, or surprise the reader. And so if a, novel, if a scene doesn't do that, it goes out in the editing process. Mm. Your editing process or your no, editor's my own, editing actually process? Actually, my own editing process. <laughs> because then, you know, it goes, it goes to my agent and he edits it. And then it goes to my, uh, to my editor and they edit it. So there's a lot of editing that happens. But I'd like to make sure that the book I get them is in the best possible shape. Absolutely. Uh, a couple of, of quick personal sure. questions, if you don't mind. There's a great photo in the gallery on your website that I need to ask you about. I am a huge fan of hers, and I would know a yep. picture of Ella yep. Fitzgerald anywhere. And there you are yep. in a tuxedo chatting away with that fabulous singer. When, where, yeah, and what was, was happening? I knew when it was happening. I just sort of thought, oh. I will never forget this. I was... Um, I was in a singing group in college called the Yale Whiffenpoofs. And at the end of our, of our academic year, we would travel around Europe. Now the Whiffs, I think, travel all around the world. But in those days, we traveled around Europe. And I was the tour manager. And I was reading somewhere that Ella Fitzgerald was going to be performing in London when we, when my singing group was in London. And so just a complete crapshoot, I wrote a letter to Ella. And I said, I remember, because I'd done some reading about her, her first professional gig was to sing at Yale, in fact, at a prom, when she was really young. And that was, and that, and she was heard there, and that sort of made her career, that sort of launched her career. So she has a certain connection to Yale. And uh, I told her that we wanted to make her an honorary whiff. And Ella was just sort of intrigued by that. And she showed up at our concert. And we sang. I, In fact, I got to sing right next to her in the horseshoe formation that we all sing in. And I got to sort of feel the resonance of her voice. And we spent several hours together and... You know, she, she told me, anytime you want to come visit me, come visit me before a concert. I'll just, just tell them you're there and I'll let you in. And sure enough, every single time I went to an Ella concert after that, I would bring friends and say, you want to meet Ella? And uh, we would go and meet her backstage. So this was sort of just a, you know, it, it was just sort of a great moment in my life that I knew when it was happening, it was going to be great. That's, I'm just sitting here mesmerized because she's one of my all-time favorites, and I felt very fortunate I was able to see her yeah. perform twice um, in my lifetime. So good for you. I love that photo, too. That's, that's great. Well, obviously, people who love books, love reading, have tuned into this podcast, and instilling a love of books is what the Tucson Festival really is all about. As you know, you've been there many times. So how about if you tell us who or what gave you a love of stories and storytelling. Well, um, like most writers, I became, I fell in love with, with books when I was young. And um, I read, I remember A Wrinkle in Time 
by Madeline L'Engle. Um, I read a series of books when I was very young called um, The Wonderful Flight to the Mushroom Planet by a woman named Eleanor Cameron. And I loved that, the, the Mushroom Planet book so much that I actually wrote her, the author, a letter. And that was back in the day when if you sent a letter to an author, it sort of took months to get a reply. And uh, so I wrote to her. I asked her all kinds of questions, how she did this and how she did that. And she wrote back to me, but it was a form letter. And yet it had her return address on it. So I, being, being you know, very aggressive at that point, I sent her a letter at her home saying, but you never answered my question about this and this and this. And she sent me back a long typed letter. And we had a kind of a pen pal relationship for about the next three or four years. And um, this was my realization that behind every novel is, and this seems stupid to say it, but behind every novel, there's a human being who makes all these decisions about narrative. And I just sort of thought, this is a job. You can do this. That's what I want to do. Oh, wow. Do you have a relationship like that with any of, uh, of your I, readers where you've gone back I, and forth yes, many I times? Yes, I have, especially because of email. It's easier to do that. Um, I've got a number of, right. of people I'm in touch with. Um, I also have a number of younger writers that I tend to be in touch with and uh, to sort of help them get through the various bumps and twists of a publishing career. Cause I sort of feel like it's the job of someone like me who's been around a while to help someone who's younger figure it out, you know? So that sort of, and I love to sort of pay it forward. And that's what I'm doing with these connections. Oh, that's great. In, in quite a few of your books, Joe, you often yeah. thank your yeah. brother, Henry Fender. Um, and he is the longtime editorial director right. of The New Yorker. Am I correct? Okay. So my question to you, I bet a lot of our listeners are big New Yorker fans. I am a fan of the magazine. And I'm wondering about, I don't know, the relationship, the give and take over the years between two brothers who both care so yeah. strongly for the written well, word. Yeah, Henry's, Henry's great. Henry's a really great editor. And he has edited... Oh, my God. So many of the, the New Yorker's biggest writers, Atul Gawande and Malcolm Gladwell. It's a long list of writers that Henry has done a lot of work for. And any one of those writers, if you talk to them, they will say that Henry saved a piece of theirs or helped them to figure out how to write it when they couldn't. Henry just has this really great editorial instinct. And um, he is my editor as well. I mean, so... I, but I will talk to him on a regular basis, usually every day. I email back and forth with him about a plot point that I'm working on or some, some question that I may have or some dilemma. Uh, and Henry's just got a really good mind for figuring out these problems. And, you know, we writers tend to get stuck in our own little worlds very often where, you know, if, if there's a narrative problem, if there's a problem in the book you're writing, Often it sort of feels like an insurmountable problem. I'll just email Henry and Henry will say, oh, yeah, that's easy. Here's what you do. You know, so we uh, and I hope I help him out sometimes, too. Um, I did teach him to read. I will say that. <laughs> he was very young. 
<laughs> well, that was important. So that that's a that's yeah, a good not, feather not, in your cap. That's for sure. Um, and and finally, Joe, um, what is the first thing that comes into your mind that you have not been able to do since March that you will look forward to doing once this pandemic is history and we can all restaurants it again? I really miss going to restaurants uh, with friends. Um, and we we have gotten takeout from a number of restaurants, but it's just not the same. So that's I would say that's one of the top things for me that I look forward to getting back to when the world turns back to normal. If it does. Which we Which hope, I we hope, hope it will very soon. Well, thank you so much for this conversation and we look forward to seeing you in the future. Uh, whether it's virtually, that's great too, but also in person out here at the Tucson Festival of Books. And um, thanks so much for this time. And I'll just ask you to hold on for just a second while I remind everybody that Joseph Fender's latest book is titled House on Fire. It's published by Dutton. Um, Listeners, please stay safe and well. And I hope you continue to find time each and every day to lose yourself in in a good book. I'm Gay Vernon. Don't forget to visit TucsonFestivalOfBooks.org for updates. And thank you so much for listening.